Well, good morning. Um, welcome to Grace Church. Uh, as, as Mark said a moment ago, uh, my name is Eric Lipscomb. Uh, thank you, Mark. And uh, we'll echo. Uh, I serve as a campus minister with uh, Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, uh, at Columbia University in Manhattan, although I am originally from Virginia and a very proud and happy uh, Virginian as well. Um, and uh, so I'll just imagine some of you have never heard of RUF as a campus ministry, so I'll just briefly in a moment explain it to you what it is, the way I explain it to my students every week when we come to meet for worship on campus. And, and what I say is that RUF, we are a community of people who are learning about Jesus, um, so for some of us, that means we are um, people who are committed to our faith in Jesus and wanting to learn and grow in that even more. And for others, that also means that we're people who maybe have never heard about Jesus, maybe are just sort of in, in, uh, interested in the story of Christianity and learning more about him. And so, but wherever you're at, yeah, even today on that spectrum from somebody who knows Jesus or somebody who's just learning about him, I, I want you to know we're really glad you're here. Um, we're really glad you're here. And because we believe that Jesus is true and that he's beautiful. Um, we also believe there's no question too large, uh, no concern too small that we can't bring to him. And so we look to his word and, uh, here in the Bible. And, and so to this morning, we're going to look at the beginning of a letter in the New Testament, a uh, letter to the Ephesians. And, and one of the sort of the key themes that Paul has in the book of Ephesians is that the work of Jesus does something to people, and it does something among people to create this better community, and he calls this community the church, right? He calls this family of God, these people who are from diverse places and backgrounds who are gathered together in Christ. And if, if you look to the front of your bulletin, you've got a little quote uh, by this guy named John Stott, who's a um, theologian, and here's what he has to say about Ephesians, um, in case you're unfamiliar. Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create, through Jesus Christ, a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. For God's new society is characterized by life in the place of death, by unity and reconciliation in place of division and alienation, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife, and by unremitting conflict with evil in the place of a flabby compromise with it. Right? And so, so Paul is saying the gospel, the message of Christianity is building this better community. Now, in saying, again, this community is better, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean that the church is always more virtuous, necessarily. It uh, doesn't ne- mean we are more fun. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean we're a more exclusive group. Um, but what it does mean is that the church ought to be this outpost of heaven, right? this place where people experience more and more this tangible taste of what God is like, where we, that, that our community looks more and more the way God intends the world to be, right? The context where you're going to find both grace and truth. This context where you're going to grow in maturity, where people practice hospitality, and you find the full and abundant life that is offered in Jesus Christ. And so community, the word community, depending on the the circles you run in, it can be a little bit of an empty buzzword. But what is a community? Well, a community is just most simply this group of people who share something in common, right? Nothing too complex there. Uh, so you think about like maybe your neighborhood community, right? You are a group of people who live in a common space. Right? Or maybe think about a social club you're a part of, if you're a part of a hunting club or a bowling club or a crocheting club, right? You have some common interest that brings you together. Or maybe you go to school or went to school together, right? You have this sort of common experience of Mr. Jones's chemistry class or whatever it is. Or, or maybe you even just have a cult, similar uh, shared cultural heritage, right? Whatever it is. You have something in common. But what's interesting is that here in Ephesians, Paul is writing to this group of people who are very different. 
they actually don't have as much in common as maybe even we do here. Right? These are people in this port city in Ephesus. And so this, you can imagine the city of people passing through, uh, going by as they trade and go to different parts of the world. And the church that is developed in this community is one that is this mix of Jewish people and Gentile people. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Well, well like, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with um, those people, but they were often very segregated, very separate. And it might not sound like a big deal that he's writing to these people, but just the, the sort of the easiest parallel in my mind is think about like the you know, pre-civil rights South and a church developing that is a mix of black people and white people together. Or I think like, there would be something that's incredibly beautiful about that, right? But there's also just trying to figure out life together. It's also really messy, really challenging. And so these people here in Ephesus don't have a lot in common, at least on the surface. But what do they have in common? Well, even as we think about ourselves, maybe what do do we have in common? Because, you know, as I look out, and I I don't know all of your stories. I don't know, you know, what neighborhoods you live in. I don't know your, your background. But I imagine a lot of them are very different. But what do we have in common? What do these people have in common? Well, the thing we have in common is that we share in the common story of God's eternal love for the world. Right now, what is that story? Why don't we read together Ephesians 1, uh, the beginning of Paul's letter here, to find out what is the story that we all have in common together. So would you read with me? Uh, It's in our bulletin here or on page 976 uh, in your pew Bibles. Hear God's word in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word remains forever. Would you pray with me now as we look to God's word for, uh, for in, uh, insight and wisdom. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we come to your word, you would give us your grace. Um, God, would you open our minds and our ears and our hearts to hear and to receive your beautiful truth, uh, to rest in it today and always. Lord God, we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So we're here again at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And, and you, maybe you're thinking, you know, why is it, why would Paul decide to start his letter in this way. And, and, and I was thinking about that, and, and I thought about it sort of this way. I was thinking about uh, a scene from one of my favorite TV shows, and, and in this scene, uh, a father and son are together, and they're camping. And they're camping, and they're having uh, you know, just kind of some, some father-son, intimate, you know, quality time. 
And they wake up in the first thing in the morning uh, on their first day of camping. And, um, you know, the, the, the father wants to have this, you know, the kind of moment with his son. And, uh, and, and so he said, you know, you know, son, here's what he says. Um, you're having this heart-to-heart conversation. You know, son, what is it that comes before everything? What have we always said is the most important thing? And the son thinks about it for a moment. And then and just very confidently, you know, replies, breakfast. And the father kind of looks at him. He's like, no, no, family. And, and, and the son sort of wide-eyed says, oh, right, right, right. I, I, sorry, I thought you meant of the things we eat, right? Now, now, now why do I bring this up? Well, I, I think it, there is, it's true that you know, there can sometimes be a little bit of confusion about what is most important. And so Paul does not want there to be any confusion about what is most important. And so right off the bat, he is putting what is most important in front of us. And he's saying, this story right here, this is what is most important for you. Right, now, why does Paul do this? Well, think about, again, the community he's writing to, this mixture of Jewish people and Gentile people, people who had been in historic conflict. Right, these were people who were using their different stories to isolate themselves to, to highlight and show their distinctiveness and silo themselves into uh, distinct communities, right? To self-select into affinity groups where everyone thinks and acts and talks and walks and uh, all like them, right? And maybe this dynamic sounds a little bit familiar, right? If you, just think about if you've ever applied to a school or if you've ever applied to a job. You, know, you, you write essays or you write cover letters and do things like this. What do you do? You use your story to show what distinguishes you from other people, you share about what makes you unique. You, you tell other people why you should be accepted to school, why you should be offered the job. You use your story to demonstrate how much better you are than other people. Right? What makes you different? But Paul is saying, no, this story is actually what we have in common. Right? This story ought to be the thing that brings us together. Now, and it's not that your story is unimportant. Right? It's not that uh, you are not unique. You are. You know, it's not that, that those things are unimportant. You know, breakfast is important also. But it's just not what is most important. And so Paul, right here at the beginning of his letter to Ephesians, wants us to see that the Christian gospel is what is most important. And therefore, this better story this ought to be the foundation of your personal art identity and also our corporate life as the people of God together. Right now, some of you maybe read this and you're, you, this doesn't look like much of a story. Right? It just sort of looks like 12 verses of you know, kind of biblical religious jargon. Where was the lead-in with once upon a time, for goodness sake? But if you, think, if you actually look at the story, uh, this verse, these verses in the original Greek, these 12 verses are actually one long and elegant united sentence. Right? And the reason that Paul doesn't start with once upon a time is because he actually goes all the way back before time in verse 4. Right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's saying before the world was even made, God had been at work. And he's showing that your individual story is actually part of this greater narrative that God is working, this story of love and redemption that God has been working at even since before the beginning of time. And so that's a little bit of the content of this story. What what, what is it? Well, I would say, just very briefly, if I were to summarize this passage, two ways. Uh, God gives us, or Paul gives us here, a story of blessing and a story of belonging. And so this is a story, our story, the story of the gospel, is a story of blessing and a story of belonging. So first, the story of blessing. And if you were reading, again, you heard the word blessed or blessing a lot. Notice just in verse 3. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in 
Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? And why has God done this? He's done this so that this work would be, as he says in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All right, now what does that mean? What does it, what does it mean to be blessed? Right, you know, that can be uh, just a, such an easy and quick and cheap turn of phrase. Like, how are you doing? If, you know, depending on the, at least coming from the South, right? oh, I'm just, just blessed, uh, uh, too blessed to be stressed or something like that. Or maybe, uh, you know, if, you, if you're on social media, you, you've seen a hashtag, you know, you go out to a nice brunch, hashtag blessed, uh, right, um, if you're on social media. Uh, apparently, though, there is actually an anthropological description of what it means to be blessed. And here's, here's what it is, I, I, as according to uh, a source I looked up. There are three components uh, to a blessing, to being blessed. To bless someone, first, to see and like that person. Second, to speak well of him or her. And third, to give away some of your life so that he or she might have more life. Right? So to bless someone is to see and like that person, to speak well of him or her, and to give away some of your life so that he or she might have more life. So blessing, it, it first starts with seeing someone. Right? Think about it. If, you, if you've ever walked into a public gathering uh, where you don't know many people, maybe uh, you've come to a new church. Right, or maybe you've gone to a, a party where you only know the host, but you don't know the host's friends. What is it that you're hoping for in that moment? Or at least, what is it that I hope for? Right, you want to be seen. Right? You want to be seen, and not just like someone notices you across the room. Right? But they actually see you, and they, they see, recognize somebody they don't know, and they come up to you and say, welcome. What is your name? Hey, I'm Eric. It's really nice to meet you. I'm so glad you're here. Right, when somebody does that, how do you feel? Right, you feel blessed. Right, someone saw you, they've received you. Right, they didn't look at you and ignore you. Right, or they didn't just kind of look you and give you the up and down and, you know, no thanks. Right, they came to you, they saw you, and they moved towards you. Right, you feel blessed. Right, so blessing starts with being seen, but it also means delighting in somebody and speaking well of them. Right? And, and I think this makes sense. If you think about um, what is the opposite of blessing, right, how would you curse someone without using, you know... Uh, <laughs> Four-letter words, you know, in maybe the most tame or mild way possible, right? A curse would be something that said, you know, I wish you weren't here. I hate your presence. Would you please go away? That's maybe the nicest way you could possibly curse someone. But the, so the opposite of that would be to say something like, you know, Mark, I'm so glad you're here. You know, having you here enriches our community. You know, we are so grateful for your presence, and we long to have you here and long for you to stay here. We want you to be here. Right, and so, so, so seeing someone in a genuine way, speaking well of them, delighting in them, and then lastly, giving away some of your life so that another might have more life. Um, and I was thinking about this uh, yesterday before I came out here. I've spent some time with uh, some mutual friends I have of uh, the Middlecoffs um, in New York, and uh, they have a, uh, a young son. They have a, a one, just over one years old. And I was thinking about sort of, you know, the, the, what parents of young children do. Uh, you know, the, the, the children are cute and they are fun, um, but goodness, it seems like it is a lot of work. Uh, I'm, I, we have our first child on the way, um, so I, I think only fun things, but I realize there's a lot more work to it. But just thinking about what young parents do, they, um, they bless their children. They give some of their life away so that their child may have, or their children may have, more life. And so that's what this blessing is. And, and when you think about that, you can start to see what Paul is doing here in this passage is he wants you to know how much you have been blessed by the triune God of the universe. 
right? And, and he wants you to know this so much so that he actually weaves it into the structure of this passage, right? So if you look at verses 3 through 6, what you see is that the blessing of God is planned by the Father, right? And then if you look in verses 7 through 12, you see that the blessing of God is accomplished through the Son, Jesus. And then, and then he closes, if you, this blessing of God is applied to you by his Holy Spirit, right? The Father plans this blessing, the Son accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. But the Father is planning, look, since even before you were born, as we said earlier, before the world began, look, notice just all the intentional language here. In verse 4, he chose us. In verse 5, God predestined. Right? And in verses 10 through 11, he has a plan and a purpose for everything he is doing. Right? That, that when you care for people or you have occasions that are coming up that are valuable, what do you do? You plan for them. You know, when, when I eat dinner by myself at home, I don't plan it. I just sort of look in the fridge or in the, the, the pantry and just grab whatever I can. Right, but if I'm having a dinner party, for, you know, when I think about when we planned our wedding, um, we didn't just show up and hope that our friends would be there, hope that the minister would arrive, hope that friends and the food and the, and the, the DJ would be there. Right, we planned this event. We planned things because we care. Right, and God the Father is planning for you to be a part of his family because he cares for you. Right, what that means is that God's blessing, God's, God's love and his care isn't random. Right? It's not arbitrary. Right? His love for you was not accidental. It is intentional. Right? That you were not an afterthought. That God saw you. Right? That before the foundation of the world, he had you in mind. And I don't know about you, but at least for me, that is this incredible balm to my insecurity. Because I think a lot of the time I, I can wonder when I am struggling, when I am just anxious about whatever is going on in life, does anybody see me? Or does anybody know what's going on? Does anybody know I'm struggling? Does anybody care? Yes, God does. He sees you. He knows you. He has known you since before the world began. The Father has planned to bring you into his family. He's planned Bless you. But then the Son is the one who is accomplishing this blessing. And he sort of gives us that in verses 7 through 8. And really what you see here is, is this sort of shorthand that Paul gives for the net result of what is happening for those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. Right? That, that on account of Jesus Christ's perfect life and death and resurrection, those who place their trust in him receive what he is talking about here in verses 7 and 8. Now, why would anyone need this? Why would anyone need what he's talking about here? Well, let me ask you, what is it, what do you do when you fail? And I don't just mean like you failed a, you know, a test when you were in elementary school or middle school. What do you do when you, when you fail spectacularly? Or what do you do when you fail yourself? You let yourself down. What do you do when you let a friend down when you fail them? What do you do when you've failed morally or when you, have, you feel like you have just done the worst thing you can imagine? And I think if we're honest, if you just sit in your own heart, in your own mind, that a lot of us have failed in pretty significant ways. Right? And they may be hidden from everybody else, but you know what's happened. Right? Like I, I think many of us have done things that our younger selves maybe would have never imagined. But you have lied or cheated, or looked down on other people. Right? We've grown accustomed to just sort of ignoring people who are in need in our midst. 
Right? Substance abuse maybe has just, just kind of gotten all too familiar. Right? What do you do with your failures? And Paul is saying here, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Right? Jesus has blessed you because he has given up all of his life so that you could have his perfect and eternal life. Right? You broke it, but Jesus is the one who bought it. Right? He has brought you back. He has redeemed you by his free grace. He has taken you away from your sin. You did not earn this blessing. You cannot earn his love. You may have earned your way into the, that job you applied for or the college you applied to or whatever, but you cannot earn God's failure. And yet, he gives it to failures like me and to you. I mean, even just think, if you, if you remember Paul's story at all, think about who Paul was. Right? Paul was this sort of you know, Jewish supremacist. He had killed Christians. And God had made him into the missionary to the Gentiles. Right? This was like the head of the clan becoming the pastor to the black churches. Right? This is a man who had been, whose blessing had been planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and now this blessing is applied to Paul and to us by the Holy Spirit. Right? That, that the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the sort of shy member of the Trinity because he's always pointing to the Father and to the Son and saying, look and give them the glory. But the Spirit is the one who guarantees and seals the work of God, as he says in verses 13 through 14, that the Spirit sealed this promise, the guarantee of our inheritance. Right? And you can think about a king in you know, maybe ancient England, right? taking his, uh, you know, pouring wax on a decree he is sending out, putting uh, the seal of approval, the seal. What does that do? It's authenticating and assuring us that it will be done. Right? It is serving as this sort of, and what Paul is saying is the Spirit given to us is sort of serving as this, down payment of the even greater blessing that will come to us with God in eternal life with him. And so Paul is saying this is a story of blessing that you are caught up into. You are caught up in the story of blessing. Right? But this is also not just a story of blessing. It is a story of belonging. And, and, and this is a little bit of a shorter point, so if you're <laughs> worried about the, looking at your clock. But, but basically it's this. If, if you are a Christian then you first and fundamentally belong to Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, and you belong to Jesus Christ, and you belong to Jesus, and I belong to Jesus, then we also belong to one another. Right? That our vertical relationship with God has horizontal implications for our life with others and our relationship with those in our midst. He's saying it is not just you alone in Christ. Right? If, you, if you saw, there were about 10 instances where, where Paul is saying you are in Christ or you are in him. You are in the beloved. It is through Christ that all these things have happened. You have been chosen in Christ. You have been adopted in Christ. You have been redeemed in Christ. You have received this inheritance in him. And in terms of your status before God, because of that, what it means is that everything that is true of Christ is now true of you. Right? That if you are united to Jesus by faith, then everything in terms of status that is true of Christ is now true of you. Right? And, and what that means, I think, for us is that there, there, there really isn't, like the Bible doesn't have this sort of category for um, sort of lone wolf 
Christians, sort of the, uh, the one-man wolf pack. Uh, the, 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 the Bible doesn't have a category for that. This is not a scattered bunch. We are a collective together. And if you, maybe you notice Paul is also using corporate language everywhere and throughout this passage. God has blessed us in Christ, in verse 3, right? Verse 7, we have redemption. And you know, even when he uses uh, the word you, it is, it is the second person plural. So if you think about verse 13, in him, uh, as, and as we would say in Virginia, y'all were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Y'all together were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And, and to quote uh, John Stott, again, who we saw, read at the beginning um, on the front, uh, here's what he says in, in another place. What does it mean to be in Christ? To be in Christ is to be personally and vitally united to him, such as branches are to the vine and members are to their body. Therefore, also to Christ, we are with Christ's people. For it is impossible to be a part of the body without being related to both the head and to its members. To be a Christian is, in essence, to be in Christ, one with him and one with his people. Right? You belong to Jesus. We belong to one another. Why? Well, what, is he, what does Paul say in verse 4? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, what? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Right? And Paul's saying, look, it is not enough for us to talk the talk. We must walk the walk. We must be people who, belonging to Christ and belonging to one another, walk together in love. And so if this is true, then, then what does it look like? What does it look like? How should we live like this? But what does it mean for us as, as Grace Church to be a community of blessing and of belonging here in our corner of the world? I, I, I'm sure there are plenty of ways uh, we could flesh this out and you could um, maybe even fill this in. But uh, just a couple of thoughts that I had. Um, I think it's maybe starting with welcoming and valuing people who aren't like us. Right, turning and looking, not just navel gazing, but looking out to seeing others who are different from us and extending Christ's love to them. And, and part of that might be intentionally developing relationships. Again, I, I think it can be so easy for life to get busy um, and think of just sort of our Christian community maybe as something we, um, you know, uh, is nice to have but I don't need to have. But I would actually invert that. I would say your Christian community is something you need. And if you're a Christian and don't have Christian friends, then I want you to make that your first prayer request. That you would actually find community that is life-giving, that is encouraging you deeper into your life with Christ. Right? Busyness just isn't a good excuse. Everyone is busy. Right? And what does it take to have a relationship? Well, a relationship, I think, it has at least four things. You need proximity, consistent time, commonality, and vulnerability. Right? And so, at least right now, we are all in the same place. We are all in roughly the same area. We try to give consistent time on Sundays and at other times. If you can't figure out what you have in common, remember, you have this story of the gospel, the most important thing in common, even if we look different or act different or come from different places. And then vulnerability, being willing to say, because my identity is rooted in who God is and what he has done, the things that I've done, my failures or my successes, don't actually fundamentally define me. That we would intentionally develop these relationships through proximity and consistent time, commonality and vulnerability. Uh, but it also means that we treat one another with grace. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is that you know, if, if you are a part of a community um, where you are not chosen by merit, you know, I, I work at a school 
that is, uh, loves to tout itself as this deep meritocracy, and therefore people uh, are tempted to look at one another on a sort of a sliding scale. Am I better than you? Is my GPA better? How are things? But if you are a part of a community of the church, you are a part of a community that is fundamentally not meritocratic. It is one that is defined and founded on grace. And so that has to impact how you view and how we treat others. Right? And that ought to be this deeply freeing fact. It, it can actually free you from having to stop comparing yourself to others. Right? That, that comparison just kills community. But you can say, I am, I am in Christ, and that is what is most true. And therefore, I can treat others with grace as well. And you can also extend invitation to your neighbor. You know, I think about this all the time. When I, don't, when I, when I think about that and I feel this conviction and then I shy away from uh, inviting my friends or my neighbors to whatever, come to church or come to some social event or things, I've actually made the decision for them. <laughs> I have not given them the dignity and respect of, making, of saying yes or no to the invitation that I offer them. But the way that I think we get from this sort of triune God of love to being a people of love is going to be through you and through me extending invitations to those to come and find life in and with Christ. Um, over, over the holiday break, I saw uh, the movie The Green Book, uh, Mahershala Ali and um, Viggo Mortensen of Lord of the Rings fame. And uh, there's this great quote at the end uh, where uh, Tony Lip is, is, is talking to Mahershala Ali's character, and he says, the world is full of lonely people waiting for someone to make the first move. The world is full of lonely people waiting for someone to make the first move. And so I hope that the church, that, and we even as individuals, would be a community of first movers. Right? That, that, that having belonged to Jesus and being blessed by him, we would see others, we would welcome them, we would give our life away. We would invite our non-believing friends to belong to our community. Well, let me just go ahead and uh, close this way. Um, I don't know if any of you uh, have uh, friends or family members who are, are, are great storytellers. Um, in my wife's family, uh, that, that person has historically been uh, my wife's grandfather, who we affectionately call Phi. And um, Phi is the father of uh, seven children and, and 19 grandchildren and, and now, I think, 30 great-grandchildren. And, uh, and so my, my first family vacation, though, with my wife's family while we were still dating it was about 15 years ago, and uh, on this first family vacation, there were about 40 of us there, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins, significant others, and uh, one night we were sitting down to dinner, and just sort of out of nowhere, you know, kind of uh, Phi stands up and, you know, clings the gl- glass and just says, excuse me, I'd like to just share a few thoughts I have. And, uh, and so Phi began to sh- uh, tell a story, but it wasn't just any story, it was actually the story of... Uh, their family. It was a story of how he met his wife, Noel, in college. It was a story of how they got married right after college and started life together, started having uh, their kids. Uh, it was a story of, of a really hard marriage and, and a season of about a decade where uh, they were just sort of coexisting and really struggling uh, on the brink of divorce. But then Bob, Phi, uh, met Jesus, and God got a hold of him, and Noel became a Christian as well. And it's a story of, of just then seeing over and over again God's grace to him, and, and Phi naming the way God and, and Jesus Christ had met him in struggle and grown him in faith. And he's sharing this story with the entire family, 
Right? Why was he doing that? It wasn't just to, to, to say, this is a nice, cute story. It was to remind them, hey, look, this is who we are. This is where we have come from. This is our story. This is what God has done. This is who Jesus is. Right? And that's why Paul is starting us with this today and giving this to us, to the Ephesians and even to us now. He's saying, this is the story that is most important for you. Right? This is your story. You have been blessed by the triune God in order that you would belong to Christ and to one another. It's my hope that we would remember our common story and allow it to shape our lives, both today and going forward. Friends, let's pray as we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that long before creation, you had chosen us in love, that you um, are a God who has intentionally been working to bring us into your family, and we praise you and thank you for that. God, I pray that as, as people who are part of your grand story, uh, that we would fit our, our individual stories under that, that we would know that we are blessed by you, uh, know that we belong to Christ, and therefore that would impact um, the way we go about our lives and the way we go about uh, treating one another and treating our neighbors. Uh, God, would you make us a community of grace? Uh, would you make us a community who lives into this reality? We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.